Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to offer leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, first and foremost, joining me on today's programme on what is a warm spring morning here in the capital is Simon Hudson. Simon is the Managing Director at Oxley's Furniture Limited, a Cotswolds-based producer of fine quality cast and fabricated aluminium furniture. Uh, Simon, hello. Hello, Scott. Thank you for joining us on the uh, programme today. Um, I suppose a good place to start would be by addressing the elephant in the room, and that's the fact that although we are slowly moving out of social restrictions, we are still within the grip of the global COVID-19 situation, aren't we? And we have been for the best part of the last 14 months now. So looking back on the last sort of year and a bit, by and large, to what extent has all of this affected you and your business? Well, I think I would have to say that we have been one of the very fortunate businesses where, although initially we were absolutely horror-struck by the prospect of what was going to happen, it very soon became apparent that actually we were going to be one of the beneficiaries as more people realized that they were going to be at home, not going abroad for their holidays and wanted to enhance their, their garden. And since we make uh, the best uh, outdoor furniture you can buy, uh, we were very lucky uh, in that respect and were able to work with the restrictions that were in place to keep the factory running. Um, and therefore, we have been one of the beneficiaries of the, of the pandemic, which is probably something that not many people can say. So that's very interesting. There was a bit of an, up, an unexpected upside of the pandemic then for your business in that regard. And I suppose that given that the business has been able to operate in good health during this time, that has had a significant knock-on effect for morale within the company and therefore well-being, I guess, I suppose. Well, indeed. And all the staff were, were very uh, worried to start with um, mm. it, because, uh, well, you know, there, was, there was a great deal of worry in the country, wasn't there? Um, but we set up a system whereby everybody um, realised the, the, the constraints at work. Uh, we, we applied all, all the regulations. But in our factory, we have a lot of space and everybody wears PPE most of the time anyway because of the, the, the roles that they perform. So we were able to, to carry on. The, 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 the office staff obviously work from home. Um, but I went up to the factory every day to make sure that morale stayed high and we, we carried on and adapted the business to work within the restraints that have been put in place. And with regards to sort of optimism and maintaining that sort of feel-good factor within the business, I suppose given that the health of the company has been quite good, it's been sort of easy for you to sort of maintain that, keep people motivated and sort of pressing on and operating well. Yes, I mean, we've been incredibly fortunate because I think the fact that people are able to work is very, very good Mm. for their health and 
you know, mental well-being, uh, it dis- dis- distracts you from what's going on in the rest of the, of, the, of, the, of the world. So, you know, we have been very fortunate um, and we've also increased our, our workforce quite considerably. So the fact that um, the staff can see other people coming and joining the company and people being very keen to join the company has, has been great for them. So for us, it's been a, 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 a more a question of keeping um, our output up when people have uh, had to go away because they've been pinged by test and trace or something and disappeared. <laughs> so so we, we have been ex- exceptionally fortunate. And I suppose what the business has done is benefited from people having to spend more time sort of in their gardens, I suppose, and needing your product as a result of that. As we sort of move out of social restrictions now, and there is that little bit more freedom there, but we are anticipating a domestic tourism boom this summer. Um, Are you still expecting the outlook for the business to be quite good? For for the rest of the year, our production is full. Uh, because it's not just in, in, in the UK that these restrictions uh, are in place, but it's all over Europe, and we're primarily an export business. So our production now for this year is com- completely full. Um, we're busy exporting all over the world as, as we normally do. So it's actually I'm looking forward to, to, to next year and wondering what's going to happen next year when there's a, a bounce back and everybody wants to, go on holiday abroad um so we'll see what happens next year and just with regards to that sort of export side of things i would like to cover that uh, because a few business leaders i've spoken to um who do export have encountered some issues with um brexit of course being fully enacted at the beginning of this year um with your product um have you found that the brexit regulations have affected your operations in any way yes it's been it's been tricky um it, it was tricky very much in the first two months of the year. We seem to have done a lot of very fast learning and our wonderful uh, freight agents have, have done an amazing job. They've had to reconfigure themselves, but it has added incredible cost to the, 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 the price of getting our, our furniture around Europe. It hasn't affected, we, we also export to New Zealand and Russia and all sorts of places, which hasn't affected those so much. But actually getting supplies in has been very difficult. One of our biggest um, costs is, is, is fabric, outdoor fabric. And the, the supply of that to us has been, well, devastated. It's <laughs> just a very, very difficult to get hold of. But I'm not sure that's down to Brexit. I'm pretty sure that's down to the fact that the the whole of the freight system seems to be in chaos due to the the, the whole containers being in, in, in the wrong places all around the world. I suppose with regards to that issue, I think sort of Brexit and COVID has come as a bit of a double whammy, hasn't it? It's um, There's obviously all of the issues with sort of trade not being quite as frictionless as the Prime Minister promised, but also with issues in the supply chain going back to last year, um, there are inevitably some delays with that. There, yes, there are. What's amazing, and the thing that I would like to concentrate on, is how adaptable businesses are. Mm. Yes, I mean, the, the situation has been pretty bad in terms of getting stuff out of the country and getting stuff into the country. Um, and it, it's not, it's, it, it's a combination, as you say, of the whole COVID pandemic and 
Brexit and everything else. But but people are incredibly, business people are incredibly adaptable. And although there are problems and there's there's shortages of everything everywhere at the moment, people work incredibly hard to make sure these things work. And it's a sort of hidden industry which which doesn't really get talked about. We always talk about all the, the bad things that happen. But people work so hard and so positively to make things happen in all spheres of business. And I think it should be celebrated much more. I think that's exactly right. I think leadership in many ways in this sense is nowhere near as recognised and celebrated as much as it should be in the UK. And we've seen an unprecedented amount of pivoting, adaptability, innovation from industry to keep this country and um, its industries running over the course of the last 14 months amid as of course, not just the Brexit challenge, but also the challenge that the pandemic has brought about as well. And I suppose in having to navigate those challenges and adjust to really a whole new business landscape, as it were, do you feel, Simon, that you've come away from this quite challenging experience, having really learned something and grown in strength as a business? I think that's absolutely true. It, it, I think uh, uh, getting through advers- adversity creates a, a confidence and uh, you know you see it in, in all professions um, that, that you have to face adversity in life and leading your your business through that uh, gives you the confidence for the future and actually the other thing that happens when things uh, or things are thrown up in the air is, is new opportunities uh, appear and you, you suddenly see, see things from a different way and so the disruption although horrendous for many people I think we can all see has changed business and brought forward things that were going to take longer to happen brought them forward by a long way so I think the whole business environment has, has, has learned a lot and and in the long term could have gained a lot from from what has happened. I think that's very right. I think there's a great deal in terms of lessons that we can take away from the uh, the pandemic, uh, both as a country, as a society, and then thirdly as well as business, as industry. There's so much that we can take away from this. Um, and I think even though, of course, the Brexit challenge is something that's going to be here to stay for the long term as industry continues to adjust to these new trading conditions, um, the roadmap out of lockdown, albeit it has been delayed by four weeks from June the 21st, um, there is now real optimism growing, isn't there, that we're maybe through the back of the pandemic challenge as an immediate and present danger and indeed on restrictions to the way that we operate. Um, are you feeling that same optimism, uh, Simon? Do you see that there's sort of an end in sight and there's light at the end of the tunnel as far as the pandemic is concerned now? Well, I I do. I just hope I just hope our politicians do. I think you know we've got to learn to live with this. We we we, we live with flu every year. Um, you know the vaccination program has been fantastic. Um, I think there's every reason to to feel that we've made many changes to society, but we need to get on and and and, and move forward and and learn to live with it. Um, and, and having made the adaptions we've all made, uh, I'm, I'm sure we can we can work work with the situation as it is now, um, make the world a better place. 
<laughs> we have to, don't we? Because even though, of course, the government has stepped in with some incredible measures to protect business over the course of the pandemic, we can't keep certain parts of industry on life support, can we? We have to get the business world back up and running as it was before the pandemic and really moving forward if that build back better agenda that the government talks about is to become the reality. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we send a lot of our furniture to uh, boutique hotels and um, uh, restaurants and places. And I, I was absolutely amazed that w- I thought we'd lose all those orders last year. We didn't. People have invested. They've, they've bought our stuff, which is expensive. They bought it uh, because they needed to change their um, outdoor environments for ent- entertaining areas and, and have invested uh, and uh, you know, done an incredible job um, and just adapted their business. So people are you know, prepared to, to keep their businesses going and, and, and work hard and invest in them. So I'm very positive. So with regards to your business uh, then, Simon, just before we do wrap things up, as we hopefully sort of move out of social restrictions and leave COVID behind, um, where is it that you're hoping to go over the next 12 months and what are you hoping to achieve this time by 2022? Well, funnily enough, I've always concentrated on the fact that our, our, our furniture is, is, is for luxury. It's a very top-end market, and we have the most amazing customers around the world. Um, however, this whole whole pandemic has made me see that actually what we produce is something that's incredibly sustainable. All our furniture is made out of recycled aluminium, and it's made to last generations. So in in two major ways, it's incredibly sustainable because you only have to make it once. And when you do make it, you make it from something that's been recycled before. It's been a can of Coke or an alloy wheel or something. So I'm now going to focus on the fact that we make incredibly sustainable furniture rather than the the luxury side of things. So I think this gives us for our our business a new focus. in all our markets and, and we're, we're just going to say we are now sustainable business everything else we do apart from the furniture in terms of packaging and fabrics and everything else we're going to try and make it as, as sustainable as possible so the whole pandemic has, has given me a whole new view of, of how we how we run our business and what we're seeking to achieve in the future I think that's um, something very important to take on board for anybody tuning into this. Sustainability, of course, is a huge part of the national discussion at the moment. The recovery that we're hopefully going to see is fundamentally going to be a green one, according to ministers. That has the backing of the majority of the great British public, according to statistics as well. So that is going to become all important in the future, Simon. I think that is absolutely right. Um, We are just about out of time on the programme today, Simon, but um, I have to say it's been a real eye-opener welcoming you on the show with us so thank you once again for joining us and i think as we start to see what sort of shape the recovery is beginning to take over the months ahead it would be great to welcome you back onto the show at some point just to catch up on what's been going on and then talk about the landscape that we're in at that point well thanks very much scott it's been great to talk to you and um, keep up the good work Thank you, Simon, and yourselves as well, and best of luck over the coming months, and do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on, because we're not quite out of the woods with the COVID situation yet, but I think we're very close, and better days certainly are ahead. Thank you. 
It was a pleasure for me to welcome Simon Hudson, Managing Director at Oxley's Furniture Limited, onto the programme today. Um, Coming up next on the programme, we like to share a diverse range of perspectives on leadership and will therefore be joined by former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, During his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Um, Since retiring from playing, he's been involved in a great deal of charity work and also spent a brief period as director of cricket for the ECB. Um, that will be coming up on the programme next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname, ah. it was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could 
say to this team that thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived in well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. 
No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch a trip bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later. Uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become a focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda – was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. 
And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job um okay so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the world cup on home soil in yes. 2019 uh i was firstly i was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in world cups and this includes my time as captain we just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt 
no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was I. Was, yeah. Actually, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, fathers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death, there's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events there, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive, if you're thinking about... Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing 
prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely yeah. no they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket um, but more importantly um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six-week period broadcasters will pay money for that and therefore what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills if you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gotta be the Lords one, right? That of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, 
its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff or other guests of any other person therein associated.